Dick Gould was the men's tennis coach at Stanford University for 38 years from 1966 to 2004. His Stanford men's tennis teams won 17 NCAA men's tennis champions, championships and 50 of his players won All-American honors. He was named the ITA Wilson Coach of the Decade, both for the 1980s and the 1990s. He's also the author of an amazing book, Anatomy of a Champion. Coach Dick Gould, welcome to Down 40 Love. <laughs> Renee, thanks. It's great to see you again. And, and uh, I love the title, Down 40 Love. I was always down 40 love. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll dig into that you know a little bit later. Why the book? It's interesting. I I was about halfway through my coaching career and a fellow a good friend actually who was a CEO of a major Silicon Valley company, tech company, would stop by Stanford Athletics uh, track and work out on his way to work and I walked across that track to get to my office each morning. And so one day we were passing about halfway through my coaching career. I'd been coaching about 10 or 12 years at the time. And he said, Dick, how do you win so many championships? And I said, well, Jack, I have the best players. And Jack was an All-American baseball player and in the Hall of Fame at UCLA for such. And he said, no, I, I know athletics better than that. It's more than that. A lot of teams have good, good players and never win. And I said, well, Jack, I, that's my answer. I stand by it. And uh, but that bothered me a lot because I realized he he had a good point, actually. And and I wasn't quite sure if I could ever come up with an answer to that or not. I, I didn't really think too much about it. Um, so when I retired from director of tennis, which I did for 14 years after I was coaching, I decided to ask my players what they thought about this question and if they had any answers to it. So I devised 20 questions for them, things like, do we have a culture? Uh, uh, how do we seem to win when it mattered most so many times? And things like that. And had amazing essay responses from 83% uh, of them, Renee. And I didn't intend to start out writing a book, but that's what it turned into uh, as I started to put these questions and their answers together into some kind of a form that they turned into chapters. And that in turn turned into a book on leadership, but not by me saying, these are the five things you do if you want to be successful. Here are the 10 keys to success. It was more answers to these questions by those being led, which I've never seen done before. And uh, I think that's that's really a different kind of concept and made the book very intriguing for me to, to finish and to do right. Uh, I think the biggest thing I came, that came out of that for me was that leading by example, not by words for all of us. And whatever we're doing in life is the important thing, whether it's parents and we're parenting, whether it's with a group, a social group, uh, uh, a charity group, whatever, or a business group, that we lead by example, not by telling people how to do something. And it's much more powerful. And that seemed to be what um, a lot of these guys felt was the key to things. You know, a lot of people would look at us as coaches and all we do is communicate. That's our job. We're communicating 24 seven, 365 days a week. And isn't it ironic that it, it always comes back to the leading by example and prioritizing sort of being a do a doer over being a talker. And one of the things I noticed in your book, you know, as I was preparing for our conversation, it, it's just so interesting, or at least I found it really compelling that 99% of this book is essentially written by the affiliations and the relationships you've developed with your players. Only the last five or six pages of the book 
go into your personal story and and how you grew up and your experiences you know leading up to taking the position at Stanford and I found that I love that okay it took me back to the time when we worked together back in 1994 okay that long ago amazing it's crazy the summer of 1994 and Stanford speaks for itself right the, the university the campus the the tennis facility that you have at Stanford it's absolutely unbelievable but the, it was the little things that I remember the little things about you that to this day I carry with me you know little things like the nameplate on the door to your office which simply said tennis coach you know it didn't say head tennis coach it didn't say head coach or director of tennis or head honcho or anything like that it was so understated yet you were the most successful college coach in tennis by far for two consecutive decades you know and it was it was that humbleness about you that really attracted me to not only you and and what you do and how you do it but who you are and the culture you know that you built at Stanford I mean, another lesson that you taught me at that time was you simply said, we strive to create a positive learning environment. You know, I had known nothing about culture or anything. That was the first time that I was introduced to the concept of building a culture and what that should look like. And you summed it up in one sentence. All that being said, maybe you can share with us some of the early lessons that you learned, you know, going back to your childhood. Um, just around around growth, around overcoming resilience, maybe up until the time where you applied to Stanford. Yes, Renee, there, there are several things that I think really affected me starting out. You, you mentioned the culture. Well, I had no, I, I was coaching by the seat of my pants. I had no <laughs> idea of trial and error. And I think most of us start out that way. There aren't too many coaching books on how to coach a tennis team, college tennis team. So uh, I was just, uh, I just was going by the seat of my pants and I didn't even understand what the word culture meant. So I, I, I wish I, I can't tell you that a secret formula. Maybe that's why I had such a problem trying to answer these questions. But there were several things that really stood out to me. I, did, I didn't want to play tennis. You mentioned a little bit about me at the end of the book. I was going to leave that out completely, but someone thought I should put it in as an afterthought because it really gave a little more insight as to who I was or how I developed. But uh, I didn't want to take a tennis lesson. I grew up as a farm boy on a 13-acre lemon orchard, and and uh, I didn't want to wear these little white shorts around town while my buddies are in <laughs> jeans and boots and so on. So I avoided that like a plague. And uh, my folks said, well, you're going to take a lesson anyway, so you might as well get used to it. If you don't do that, we're not going to let you ride your horse all summer. Well, for an 11-year-old who grew up on a horse, that's pretty a pretty definite, definitive statement. I didn't want to go to this lesson, but I did. And uh, the teacher was a guy named Harold Chafee. His daughter, Nancy Chafee Kiner, Ralph Kiner's future wife, uh, was one of the top 10 players in the world and, and, a, and a really outstanding player. He was a great teacher. And I didn't know that, of course, when I went there. The lesson before mine had these little 14-year-old girls on 11-year-old kids just coming into hormonal growth. And these little 14-year-old twins were taking a lesson before I got on the court. <laughs> I'm sitting there watching them in these little halter tops and hot pants, they called them in those days. I thought, wow, this sport's not too bad. <laughs> and then I got on the court and Chafe knew I didn't want to be there. And he had this big booming voice and he made everything I did exciting and equated it all to another sport. He would say things like, you watch the ball come off the racket like 
Ralph Kiner, his future son-in-law, said, uh, watched it come off the uh, out of the pitcher's glove hand. You step into the punch, you step into the hit like Rocky Marciano, who was a heavyweight champion of the world, steps into his punch. Things like this, little things that now make an analogy with uh, another sport. And I thought, wow, this sport has something between the two little gals and and chasing uh, sighting uh, way of teaching. And he made it exciting for me, which is one thing that really, really stuck with me. And and the, not everyone takes a tennis lesson and wants to be there. Most of them are like me. Their parents think it's a good, it's a good idea to expose them to the game. And so they're there. And uh, my job as a teacher is to entice them to like it more and want to learn more. And you do that by making it exciting. And my first example of thinking that I finally succeeded in doing that when I was in college, my coach at Stanford was at a pro at a club and only a part-time uh, college coach. And he couldn't leave the club in the summertime to go out to the private courts in the area and teach lessons to the people who wanted to take the lessons on their own court. So he asked me to do that for him uh, my last summer in college. And I did. And I was out in a neighboring town and teaching this gal at the end of the summer. She signed up. Parents signed her up. She was about five years old, very, very young to start tennis in those days. I wouldn't start people in those days until they were about 11. Mm. And uh, the rack was the, it was a heavy wood rack. It's way too heavy for and big for. And two or three lessons go by, and she still hasn't hit the ball, but she had a beautiful forehand swing as an example. And finally, it happened to be the last lesson of the summer, the fourth one, I think it was. She connected, and she hit a beautiful forehand. And I'm clapping and I'm saying, that's it. That I can't even remember her name. That's it, just Susie or whomever. And she's got excited, looked at me and she started jumping up and down and big smile on her face, grinning ear to ear. And she seemingly froze in midair. And she looked down at the ground, looking up at me, looked down at the ground again, this little puddle of water is forming under her. Uh-huh. And, and all of a sudden she realized she got so excited. She realized what had happened and she ran off the court into the house, and I never saw her again. To this day, I don't think I've ever seen her again. And and I kind of laughing to myself, Harold Chafee's lesson, make it exciting. And maybe I did. Maybe I made it a little bit too exciting. <laughs> Another I thing think- I learned starting out in my first teaching job uh, the year after that, I was teaching at high school, and you hired, I was on the, on the, uh, on the staff, on the faculty, and had classroom courses, but I also coached the tennis team in the spring and the JV football team in the fall, the frost soft team. And we're having a little tackling drill. I don't know very many of us like to have contact drills. That It's something you have to learn to appreciate uh, the contact of football. And it can be taught, I think. And it can be learned. So we'd have these little one-on-one tackling drills from about eight yards apart. And I came out one day in my cleats and then I pushed around my neck, still in my dress shirt from the classroom. And we had this little one-on-one tackling drill from about eight yards apart, seven, eight yards apart. I'd blow a whistle. These two guys would go at it. And one guy would try to tackle a guy with the ball. Still while staying on the line, they couldn't avoid the line. So all the teams standing around, about 30 other guys, and Eddie Matias ran forward and blew the whistle and slipped and fell after a couple of steps just before contact. Eddie, let's get up, do it again. Whistle slips and falls to the right. Eddie, again. Slips and falls back on his back. And I'd had it by then. I'm going over to Eddie. I'm leaning over him and yelling every swear word I can think of, calling every name in the book. My family <laughs> ran out of words, and, and I didn't know what to say, and I just stopped. 
And I'm looking there and he holds up his hand and gives me the middle <laughs> finger and says, fuck you, Mr. Gould. And I didn't know how to take it. I just kind of froze. And all of a sudden I started laughing and my team started laughing. They didn't know what to do either. They're all watching. And I learned right then and there that another really important thing in teaching, besides making what you're teaching exciting, is to be oneself. I wasn't Vince Lombardi, that taskmaster of a, a great coach for the for the Green Bay Packers. I was simply Dick Gould. And I had to be myself. I couldn't try to be who I thought I should be. And that was a very important lesson. Yeah. That's uh, a, yeah. There's That's a couple a of little things. One of my early mentors, he kind of took me under his wing when I was starting out as a teaching professional at a local club at the same time I was teaching high school and junior college. John Gardner ran one of the first tennis camps in the United States, a beautiful camp. And everything he did in his camp was first class. Uh, the dress of the uh, the coaches, their uh, flags, American flags, the music every morning as you went out to the court. Uh, just really, really a classy environment. And that taught me the importance of projecting a class environment in all you do and the pride your, your people take in that. And finally, I'd been coaching a few years and, and uh, we finally won a national championship. This was like 1978, I believe. And I was reading the account of a pregame press conference by a former Oakland Raider coach, defending Super Bowl champion, Al Davis. And he actually was quoting from Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> and in the press conference, they said, they asked him, I said, oh, you won it last year. What's it going to take to win it again? And his answer was, it's like the Red Queen told Alice. You have to run as fast as you can, as hard as you can to get somewhere. But once you get there, you must run twice as fast to stay there. And this taught me then, right then and there, that I couldn't sit in any championships we ever won that I had to always try to improve and I had to run faster and run scared. And so in keeping this every four or five years, especially as I went on years in coaching, I felt I had to do something to project this change, this uh, adaption and trying to get better. I had to do something that was never been done before or do something better than it had ever been done before. And so every four or five years, we try to do something in the program uh, whether it's technology or related to an event or something like that, that had never been done before or do it substantially better than it had ever been done before. So no one could sit back and say, well, he's just sitting on it. He's just waiting to retire. I never wanted anyone to say that. Where does your drive come from? Like, where did it come from then? And what keeps you going now? Well, I, I was hired at Stanford and I told the guy who was hiring me. And at those days, Stanford and athletics was, was very negative. When I was in school, it was very negative. Uh, the coaches were all saying, well, we can't win. We're an academic institution. Uh, we can be pretty good, but we'll never be great in any sport. Uh, admissions won't let the great athletes in. Great athletes and people who uh, are good students don't mix. Uh, it'll never happen at Stanford. And a guy named John Ralston was hired about the same time I was as football coach. And he was a really, really positive guy. And we kind of grew up together in Stanford Athletics. And I was the same way. I when I was hired, I told my boss, I said, I think we can win a national championship. And he, I'm sure he's kind of looked at me and just said, yeah, sure, everyone says that. But no one has done it at Stanford for centuries. And But he hired me. And I told my team that one time, and, and one of my first players said, I remember the meeting, we were all sitting around in a circle, and coach said, you said, we're going to win a national championship. 
And we just looked at each other, rolled our eyes and said, coach, that's never going to happen here at Stanford. And, uh, and yet we finally did that. And, and uh, gosh, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I finally proved to myself it could be done. And, and that was a big thing ego-wise. My ego was getting in my way. And my coaching methods were, guys, we have to do this. Win this match and then we'll win this one. It'll be okay. And, and I put so much pressure on the guys that uh, they weren't having fun. But they did in spite of me. They won the national championship. And I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I didn't know or even care if we ever won, won another one again. <laughs> but we happened to win the next year in spite of some really challenging circumstances at the end of the year. And then a couple of years later, we won again and again. And, and uh, I was kind of amazed it was happening, but we did. And John Rawlson went to Rose Bowl and uh, for a couple of years in a row and beat the Big Ten schools each year. And, and uh, so I think we kind of grew up the football program and myself together and set the stage for all of Stanford Athletics. And Title IX came in and we jumped on a Title IX bad wagon full blast really early, especially in tennis. And I think uh, that set the standard for all Stanford success in the future. So it sounds like you made the shift from being uh, extremely results and outcome oriented to to becoming more process oriented. Absolutely. And that, that I was such a much better coach after when I did that, Renee. I just got, literally my ego was getting my way. We got to do this. I'm saying that just so I would look better and could prove to myself it could be done. And uh, that's just not the way to do things. And I think throughout the book, it came again and again and again. Uh, as the years went by, things like, well, coach never talked about winning. He never mentioned the word winning. We came to Stanford. We just assumed we're going to win. There was a culture established then that was embedded in that once we finally did it. And and uh, and I was much better coach when I, I didn't have to talk about winning. Uh, that's different than effort, of course. You always have to put in the effort and the, and the sacrifice along the way. But uh, not having to talk about it was much more effective than putting that up there on the bulletin board each day. Well, it, it was certainly evident in, in your tennis teaching system, you know, your book, Tennis Anyone, that it's nothing if not procedural, right? And, and a step-by-step -step process to learn how to hit a tennis ball, which you shared with all of us, you know, as your instructors and coaches, you know, at the Stanford Adult Tennis School and, and the Stanford Tennis Camps. And just this systematic approach to getting better and your longtime assistant, John Whitlinger, you know, when, when I asked him, I said, I said, John, like, how do you guys do it? Like, what's the, what's your secret sauce? And he says, Renee, we just strive to get a little bit better each day. Um, and I've never forgotten that, you know, and I feel like that's what it comes down to. It's simple on paper, but not always easy to, to embody. That's so true. And it's so important as well. Actually, what was there, he was, uh, he was in the second championship we won and uh, after, after the year after winning our first. And so I was starting to change a little bit about that time and, and put more emphasis on the process. And and that comes out of the book time and time again, the process, the process, the process, and uh, making that fun. And, and uh, you know, I on the other hand, I, I just hate alibis and procrastination. I, I don't want excuses. That's all I heard as an athlete growing up from even the coaches, why they couldn't win, the academic standards. And, uh, or whatever it might be. Um, and I, I just hate it with my players. And I was very quick to not tolerate alibis or procrastination. 
Um, yeah, my my guess in you know in coming to know you over the years and and reading you know portions of your book, you you're not afraid to fail and you're you're not afraid to to make the ask. You know, maybe you can bring us back to your experience when you applied to Stanford and your your alternate plan story and 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 also like the courage that it took to um to ask that Stanford bring you on on a full-time basis because as you mentioned earlier you know today it was a part it was a part-time job and i think most people go into those situations not necessarily desperate maybe some do and and that's always you know not a formula for success but you just you had this vision of how things could be and you weren't afraid to start and and to ask where does that come from and and what kind of advice can you give to people that you know they want to start something new or they're looking to make that shift in their lives yeah i i i think that is one great thing we always we usually have the good fortune and the opportunity to change what we're doing uh it takes a lot of guts a lot of times i was a teacher uh, I probably never would have left the junior college I was teaching at, Foothill College, if the Stanford job had not opened. I would not have gone. I was not looking to go into college coaching, especially. But Stanford was a program I felt uh, in tennis it had more to more to achieve than it was achieving. And uh, you know, some something sexy about trying to be the first, uh, do something that never been done before that people didn't think didn't think was was possible. And uh, that was a really big instigator for me. I thought, wow, I really think we can do this. And uh, I just, you know, you try to create an environment in the process that one in which the players can take pride in. Uh, little things, Renee, you just, you don't tell them to take pride in their facility by picking up a piece of trash over there next to where they're standing. You just walk by them and bend down and pick it up yourself. And they learned by that, uh, of taking the facility. I don't think you ever saw the old shack that was my office for 14 years. It was about 10 by 10. It had been built in 1926. It still had tar paper on, uh, on the interior walls beneath the two by fours. Uh, they said, where do you want your office to be? Which desk do you want in the athletic department where the other coaches are? I said, well, that shack out by the tennis courts. That's just got a bunch of boxes in there. Can we move those boxes? And, can I use that? And I said, yeah. So my office was in an old shack for 14 years. It just became kind of a, a, a fun place because we did a lot of things in that shack that that started our program out, which was really exciting. And one of the swimming coaches came by later to win many national championships. And he, <laughs> one of his first visits, said, go talk to Gould. And he comes over to the tennis shack. And so I couldn't believe it. I walk in, there's these four championship trophies on the wall. And it's just, uh, it's just, it's just a ramshackle shed. And he said, Gosh, I was bitching about the swimming facilities for a while. He said, if he can win this thing, I can win too. <laughs> yeah. I think the uh, the relationship with other people is so important. I think uh, accountability, uh, holding other people accountable, if you wish, uh, being accountable yourself to your players, accepting that accountability, showing respect for all of the people, not just your team, but the people around them who support them, the ushers, the maintenance people, uh, showing that respect to the people that help build the program, support the program that they all are, we all are a part of. And I think the biggest thing of all, and we almost got this earlier when we 
the first question, and that is the importance of listening. Uh, listen to other people. Take time to listen. It's hard to listen. You have all these pearls of wisdom you want to impart in your mind, uh, some of which they may or may not even care about. But it's so much more powerful to listen to their body language, to listen to what they're saying, to listen to how they're acting, and to try to see why certain reactions are coming out the way they are. Uh, really caring for all people, not just your team, but their families, their sisters, their brothers, their parents, as they go through their trials and tribulations. Uh, the people who are supporting you in the athletic department, the students around you, uh, really caring for all people and, and showing that you care by your actions. I think uh, egos is an important thing. We're in an individual sport, Renee, as you know. Uh, you, you have to have a certain, in any great organization, you have to have a certain amount of ego. If you don't have belief in yourself, it's hard to project that you have a belief in other people. But that ego can get your way. It did mine when I first started teaching. And uh, at some point, humility must come out. And it's so important to show that. And your success as a coach is going to be large, a leader of any team, business team, whatever it might be, even your family, is going to be related very closely to how you not control egos, but how the egos are meshed within your team. You need them. You need people who believe in themselves, but not to the detriment of the team. You need people who will subject their own egos for the good of the team, which in turn, if they think about it, helps to make them better. The better the team is, the better their practice partners are, and the better they themselves can become. And so those things are all, relationship with others is based on all those things. and so important to show by what you do. I think I Coach think K, Coach K enc uh, encouraged his teams to um, not get rid of their egos, but to play for one ego, you know, to channel those, bring that confidence, bring that swagger, but let's channel all of that energy in one direction. Is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. So important. And, and I don't know about swagger. I hated that when my guys swaggered. Uh, <laughs> I think humility is so important. And I, I, so I'm not so sure I like the word swagger, but I had a son-in-law who played for Coach K for four years. I have a son-in-law who played for him for four years. And, and he's, to this day, he's, he's the most important guy in his life and really respects all he did and what he stood for. Um, but I think it's just, uh, especially today, it's important because you know, as a tennis player, you're growing up and you get on a free list. So you get a free racket or you get some equipment and you start thinking and then you get guys telling you're getting really good. And you go to college and your coach to get you to go there says, well, you're going to be the next best great thing in college tennis. And, and then you get to college and the agents start telling the kids, gosh, you're going to be really, really good. So they can sign you to a contract in the old days. That was more prevalent than today. But that's uh, you, you get a certain feeling of entitlement. And I think today's world, that, that's really, really a thing that we have to face as a coach. And, and it's something we have to get rid of. You, you, you earn what you get. You, you have to appreciate anything you do get, but you have to earn most of what you get. It's not just, don't just expect it to be given to you. I think my guys uh, quoted me in on, on one, one topic that was once one topic line that was really, really important. And that was by your actions, Remember who you are and what you represent. You're representing not just tennis, but that's important. You're representing your family. You're representing university. You're representing your teammates. 
you're representing yourself, what you stand for. Remember who you are and what you represent. Uh, don't feel that you have to be entitled in everything that happens. And I think today, world that brings up a lot of problems with ethics we're seeing with our country's leaders and uh, all over the place. That's just really, to me, sickening. Do you do you believe in universal principles that sort of govern, you know, some of these leadership type of examples that you've shared today? Um, because when you when you talk about representing who you are and representing your university, um, it sounds good on paper, and, and we strive to do that at McKendry, you know, with our men's and women's tennis teams. But as you know, in the heat of battle and the heat of competition, it's so easy to lose that connection, you know, and that big picture because we're, we're dealing with the challenge that's right in front of us. How, how would you sort of make it all make sense for us when we're in the heat of the battle and we're going after that goal to, to maintain that, that perspective? Well, I think it's really important as, as the leader of the team, the coach uh, of any team, that you set that example. If, if you start acting on the court like you're getting robbed, uh, if you start arguing too loudly for your own player uh, with the umpire, if you don't respect the umpires and show respect to them, uh, they're not they're going to make mistakes just like you are. I mean, you have to accept that. Nobody's perfect. Don't berate them when you think they do they make a mistake. Um, you're going to have bad days. I, I take a lot of pride, and I don't think my players ever knew when I had a bad day. And at least that came out in the book. They didn't think they did. And I think that uh, that all starts with the coach, I think. And, and it's not easy, and they're going to – they're young kids. My God, they have a million things in their mind. That's a tremendous time, an opportunity to be a, a leader, a coach. College age, you get these kids three hours a day or a little more sometimes, six, seven, six days a week uh, under all kinds of pressure in your sport, let alone what they're going through socially and college and academically. Uh, it's a tough time being away from home for the first time, really full time for most of them. It's a tough, challenging time. And you have to realize that and you have to give them some latitude. And they're going to make mistakes. Uh, uh, little things like, you know, you, I, I would just, when a guy's having a tough time, he's not going to be productive in fact practice. I just send him back back to the dormitory, back to the paternity house. <laughs> no sense of him being out there and infecting everybody else. It's not like football or basketball. I, have, I don't have an offense to install that if I send my key player home, that is going to affect the rest of the team and my installation of that offense for the next week's game so i can send someone home i i know little things you know you you're starting out today it's pretty good and all of a sudden one guy throws a racket then someone else throws a racket then all of a sudden everyone's throwing the racket <laughs> the little things i know we walked one time i walked him out onto the field next to the the, the grass field next to the tennis courts and i lined them and bring your racket come on out i lined them up on the goal line i said okay now you can run up the 10-yard line i want to see how far you can throw your racket and they all kind of looked at me, and then I blew my whistle, and they did that. I said, now go down and pick it up. I waited in a 50. And they went down 50 yard, picked up the racket with 50-yard line. I said, now throw it back with the whistle. I threw it back. We did that a few times. Went back to the practice course, and no one threw a racket again for the next couple of days. Uh, one time, you know, swearing the same thing. You, you get upset easier when you're tired or things aren't going right off the court or even on the court. So you'll see us where we're. Uh, well, one time we went out and I said, you guys, come on with me. Leave your rackets here. We went out 
faced a wall of a building where no one could really hear us, I don't think, I hope. <laughs> I said, I want you guys now, as loud as you can, top of your voice, swear at that wall, every swear word, every terrible thing you can think of at that wall, and yell it out. Let it go, and I say, three, one, two, three, go. And that was fine for five seconds, 10 seconds, maybe 15 seconds. They ran out of words, and they started looking at each other. And again, when we came back to court, there no more swear words for a couple of days. Just little things like that. Yeah. One guy, a really positive coach, I uh, heard talk one time, said, they still my guys when I was coaching soccer, whatever it was. He said, they had a bad dad. And I, he told told this, this talk I, I heard him give. So I tried it. Things weren't going too well in practice. Said, okay, guys, come with me. We walked in the public restrooms and there were urinals and toilets in there. And Stand at a urinal, stand at a toilet, find one, stand at it. And when I say flush, flush it. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And then I said flush. And they flushed it. I said, okay, guys, you got rid of it. Let's go back to court and carry on. And there, there are ways to do this kind of thing that kind of show people that instead of just swear, swearing back at someone, what are you talking about? Shut up or something. You can send them home or you can call them together or just sit down what's bothering you guys today and just you know just is it our practice what we're doing how can we how can we make this better it's not you telling what you're going to do how can we make this better and i think that's an important concept that's why i like this title so much down 40 love you don't go to practice at deuce or with advantage every day sometimes you are down 40 love when you step inside those hallowed gates of the tennis court and uh, how do you deal with that and this is the first step in dealing with it, how you behave, what your mental frame of mind is. Well, you read my mind. That was my next question, Coach. What does Down 40 Love mean to you? Well, it's such a great title. I think that, <laughs> you know, you have to start somewhere, and very few of us ever start at the top. That's, that's, not, that's not too often when that happens. Uh, and I think really the major person is determined by how one deals with setbacks and, and challenges. Uh, to me, that means a lot in showing me what kind of a person a person is. I think we have to accept the fact there are going to be challenges. And we really have to be excited about relishing that challenge. It may be just a match, trying to win a match. You know, the guy's at least as good as you are, maybe better than you are on paper. What a great opportunity to try to test yourself against someone like this. And uh, I read a quote by Nelson Mandela, whom I really respected. The greatest glory in living the greatest glory in living lies in not never failing, but in rising every time we fall. And I think that's just such a great uh, statement. Coming back, getting back off the ground and coming back up. I, I think that too many times we, we think we have to be perfect to win. And there is no such thing as perfection in sport. Top batter in baseball strikes out two thirds of the time. Top quarterback in football doesn't complete a third of his passes. He's always trying to improve to get better. And uh, one of my players in the book said one of the greatest things I ever. My by the way, in that book, I don't think anyone said how much I helped their forehand or their backhand or the serve. It was all about the mental state and their answers. And that didn't necessarily have to be the case, the way the questions were worded, but that's what it turned out to be. And he said. I got better when I realized I didn't have to be perfect to win. 
And that's the biggest challenge. We're never going to be perfect. You know, we we have a second grade spelling test, first grade spelling test, and we come home and show a proudly show our paper to our mom and all 10 words, C-A-T-D-O-G. Renee, they're all spelled right. Teacher put a gold star in the top of that page and wrote one word, perfect, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, and underlined it. And all of a sudden, we got this feeling we had to be perfect. And what a terrible, terrible amount of pressure to put on a child. You can't be perfect, but you can be better. You can go for it. You can never be afraid to fail because you're trying to make something better. Uh, I think this was a big thing in our success, and that was our our basic tenet in, in our strategy was first strike tennis, to make things happen, not sit back and wait for someone to lose. And so all my players, very few, only a couple, Sandy Mayer, Jimmy Grab, one or two other guys came to Stanford with a certain volley game. And uh, most of them had been taught a fair, net, fair amount of net game. But to put them together when they're 14 years old and still growing was pretty hard for them to do and something that a coach really can't expect a player to do. But by the time they're in college and 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, they're physically strong enough uh, for me to take those parts and put them together. But in being aggressive, you're going to make mistakes. And coming in that, you're going to get have balls go by you you can't get to. And that's failure in a, in a sense. But on the other hand, that pressure of constantly putting pressure on your opponent, I think, pays off not only in terms of your mindset, but in the mindset of your opponent. Uh, and we were really effective in teaching people to attack, not to react. I think my biggest pet peeve was, and the thing I was always watching my players was, to be sure that one of my players was not waiting for his opponent to lose, but that he was going out and trying to make that happen. Um, those are things that for me are really be important. Never be afraid to fail. Yeah, you wrote an article um, in the 90s, I believe. And one of the tips um, that I remember was, if you don't shoot, you don't score. And the lesson that you were imparting. I'm a hell of a basketball coach, wouldn't I, Renee? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, just this, the concept of just not being afraid to fail and having courage and being bold and playing aggressively. Well, it's it like really, call I'm sorry. strike in baseball. You don't want, you don't want to leave the bat on your shoulder. I mean, you got to go for it. You got to, you got to take a swing, you know, worst thing that happens, you strike out, but at least you're trying. And your life is evident of that. And that's what I love so much about connecting with you and, and listening to your stories and, and what, we can gain from your experiences um, because I experienced it live and in color there, you know, everything from the culture and the environment, you know, that we were talking about earlier to, you know, the pictures on the walls and the messages that you would share with us as a staff and 120 youngsters, you know, simple messages like eat more ice cream and, you know, yeah, you remember that eat more ice cream, you know, have, have fun treat these tennis courts as it's your own living room. I mean, I took that one and I was picking up trash all over that, all over Todd family stadium for, for 10 weeks, you know, <laughs> I mean, and you and you had this ability to impart a lot, a ton of wisdom in a way, in a California laid back style 
which from what we learned today, it took you time to develop, right? You know, you realize you you weren't going to be Vince Lombardi. That's not, that doesn't work in tennis. Maybe it works in football, you know, but you, you found yourself. It may work in tennis. It may work in tennis, Vinny, also. I don't know that it doesn't, but, <laughs> but I think the point is you have to be yourself. Yeah. Be someone you're not is not going to work. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, if you could share two or three strategies for how we could develop resilience, what would those strategies be? Well, I think we just talked about failing, and and I think uh, like with the Mandela quote, uh, rebounding set, setbacks. I think the coach sets the example. If I look like I got robbed or I got jobbed, the team's gonna feel they got robbed or they got jobbed. They won't take. They won't be accountable for their own actions. So I, I really, as a coach, set the example for that. Uh, we get beat. We get beat. We move on. Maybe don't dwell on it. You may bring up a couple of things that you think we could do to better ourselves, but then then you say it and and then you move on to the next the next minute, the next day, the next hour. Um, I think the other thing that's really important when you talk about resilience, and that is don't set yourself up as a coach for failure with unrealistic goals. I think in our pupils, to tell someone they're going to be they could be a, the best in the world or top 10 in the world when they're in college, you know, that's too far out there. And it puts an amazing amount of pressure in them. And I think incremental goals are so much better, whether it be technique or tactics, uh, not winning. Uh, that's never the goal is winning, never the goal, not ever the stated goal. The goal is always getting better, emphasizing the process, having fun with what you're doing. Don't take yourself or the process too seriously. Uh, I think I became a much better coach that I mentioned when I proved that we could win to myself. And then my philosophy changed from we must win to a getting better or improving uh, philosophy, which is key to my to what happened later on. I think you mentioned uh, little things about eating more ice cream. And that came from a really great poem that, or I guess you call it a poem, that was written by a Robert Hastings who wrote for the Illinois Baptist. And it, it was called The Station. And he emphasized the journey. The, you're on a trip on a train and you always want to get to the next station, the station where you're headed for. You want to get there. And when you get there, you find out it's just another station. <laughs> so it's a journey that you're on that provides the growing opportunities, the excitement and so on. So learn to appreciate the journey. I think kind of in the end, uh, as we sum this up, the uh, epigraph of my book is, Coaching in any arena is a sacred responsibility. And that means not coaching in athletics. The arena could be your family. It could be your business. It might be a sport. It could be a, a beginning sport in sixth grade or fourth grade or youth soccer or something like that. Or it could be just a, a charity you work for. But leading in that example is really a responsibility. And especially when you're dealing with young people, it's a sacred responsibility. And if you're fortunate enough to have that responsibility uh, and to realize that we all are coaches at some time in our life, that uh, if not every day, and can do it by example, that you'll have a productive life. And when you look back and on things, you can feel satisfied. Coach, what would you like your legacy to be? <laughs> It's funny, Renee. I, I'd say, well, when I finally retire, <laughs> I'd be proud to have my tombstone say, 
he cared. He had a great ride. He went for it. He got better. He did it the right way. And he had no regrets. That's perfect. <laughs> Getting better every single day. A coach, where can people find you online? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I think I, I want to put a little plug in for this book, Anatomy of the Champion. Sure. Uh, it's we're, we've just changed publishers, so it's going to be, it'll be probably uh, mid-October before, mid-October before it's back online at Amazon, but it's cheap. You can buy it in Kindle for 10 bucks. Um, you can uh, buy a copy for 20 bucks. It's a, in a paperback and it's, it's not, it turned into be a book on leadership written by my players. And it really is interesting to me. It was really interesting to me to hear what their answers were to the questions that I asked and then to put them in a form that was something we, that I could share with other people. And again, it's not me saying how things should be done. I didn't know what I was doing and I still didn't. That's why I couldn't answer my buddy Jack's question. Even <laughs> when I was having success as a coach, it just were things that I did kind of naturally and kind of fell into and made a lot of mistakes along the way. We all do. Uh, but it, well, it was important to these guys. And again, it wasn't, the grip on their forehand, the uh, keeping the racket up on the volley or something like that. It was it was more about the things they learned from example about life that was important to them. And I think it really it, it can really be refreshing and helpful and, and, a, and a reminder to all of us of some of the things that at least work for my guys in this situation. Most of them are transferable. Yeah, I think you've I think what we both can agree on, which is everything in this conversation, but we create what we are. You know, what I've learned from you is you're extremely entrepreneurial. I mean, you're an entrepreneur and there's, there's things that you've created that we didn't even touch on today, just in terms of foundations and your ability to fundraise organizations in Northern California and, and beyond, you know, and look how many entrepreneurs have come through your program, you know, you're obviously a leader. You're obviously a coach. Look how many leaders and coaches and educators and people who are out there in the world impacting people's lives that have come through you and your program. You know, so you and your just this emphasis on leading by example, I think, is such an important message. You know, not only for me, for for our audience, for everybody out there. You know, especially in this world of social media, when everyone's into to selfies. And, you know, and the newest Instagram story, you know, I feel like old school principles like integrity and authenticity and, and true humility, you know, and, and balancing your ego and cha channeling it to something bigger than yourself, you know, like the stadium that's behind you, something that's bigger than, than Coach Gould, you know, and Coach Witt and, and the people around you, um, you know, you just embody greatness to me. And I, I just really want to take a moment to thank you for taking the time today to, to share, you know, more about your book and, and what's what's brought you to where you are in your life right now. Renee, what a, what a pleasure for me. I, I, I mentioned this in the book, kind of in the appendix, but, <clears throat> you know, I, I love teaching. <clears throat> and I, I really enjoy teaching beginning PE class, which I had to do for many, many years along with my coaching responsibilities at Stanford. 
uh, the satisfaction from seeing a beginning peak class gain a love for tennis was just as exciting as coaching my team. And uh, the other part of it that I touched on in the book was the opportunity to work with young coaches, people starting out in their careers. And you guys, when you started, were just getting going. And, and a lot of people who were on our staff in those days, 20, 25 people were, it was their first job in a teaching job situation. And so I was in essence teaching teachers uh, yeah. by example, hopefully. Uh, we had a, a method of teaching that was, it was simplified because we had to work with groups of people. It was a little different than I coach a top player. Uh, just like my first book, Tennis Anyone is built for teaching masses, not for working with an individual, but it worked and it was simple and in the way it was done. And uh, to have, it was just as satisfying for me in terms of teaching a pupil as uh, to be teaching a future teacher. And I see so many of you go into the profession and do well and make a mark in it has been as, just as gratifying as teaching a world champion. I'm so thankful, Renee, for the opportunity you guys gave me. So thank you. Thank you, Coach. It was good to be with you. And um, always my best to your better half, if that was possible, Miss Ann Gould. She is a better half, believe me. <laughs> and <laughs> Renee, so try, try not to get down love 40, okay? <laughs> I'll do my best. Thanks. Nice talking to you, my friend. You too.